Good morning, Grace City Church. All right, so this group is a little more full today because we have some special children that are normally in their classes, but they're with us today. Let me see. How many of you here are age three, four, or five? Raise your hand really high. You got to raise it high for all of the really big, large people. Let me see around them. Okay. How many of you are age six, seven, eight, or nine? If you're six, seven, eight, or nine, really high. Whoa, lots of hands. Okay, let me ask you a question. 10 and up, you do not get to participate in this. This is just for three to nine. Yeah. I want to know what your favorite thing about Christmas is. But if I ask you and you raise your hand, it'll take all day. So we're going to all say it at the same time. We're all going to do it at the same time. I'm going to count to three, and you're going to tell me what your favorite thing for Christmas is. If you're 10 and up, you don't get to do this. You can get on social media and show all your pretty pictures and all your experiences and all that stuff. But for the three to nine, I'm going to count to three. You tell me what your favorite thing about Christmas is. It could be the candy, the food, the presents, the time off of school, whatever it is. You tell me what it is. Ready? One, two, three, go. That is great. I didn't get any of that, but I heard the joy and the energy, and that is fantastic. My favorite thing about Christmas, I, I had to think about this. What is my favorite thing? My favorite thing, honestly, is the stories. I love the stories at Christmas time. They can be the silly stories about grown-up elves that are walking through New York City, messing up things, looking for their dad, or... Boys who have no business getting a BB gun, getting one anyway, and almost shooting their eye out. Uh, or they could even be like the spooky ones of the ghosts that come and tell the greedy old man that he needs to be more compassionate at Christmas time and to see other people. Uh, I draw the line at Hallmark movies. <laughs> but even then, I've still seen two of those this year. I don't even know that how that happened, but it did. Um, no, I love, the, I love stories. And of, course, and of course, the best Christmas story is the Christmas story. And we read about that just a few minutes ago. But what I want to do, I want to tell you a story really quick. It's not exactly a Christmas story, but like any good story, it begins in space. And so in 1969, uh, we as Americans, we landed on the moon. And we celebrated that. And it was a big deal. And everything was great. But... What we didn't talk about too much in America was that we were not the first people to space. Because uh, that actually happened eight years sooner in 1961. And we kind of mumbled about it. We didn't make it too big a deal. Because that was the Russians. Uh, they got to space in 1961. And the first person to actually do that and then land, his name was Yuri Gurgan. And Yuri Gurgan, when he landed, they asked him, what was it like when you were in space? And the official the church or doctrine in Russia is atheism. And Yuri was quick to promote that. He said, I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I didn't see God. Well, also in 1961, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis was still alive. 
And C.S. Lewis, kids, if you don't know who he is, he's written some great books. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series and the Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity and a bunch of great essays. And C.S. Lewis also didn't like to keep his mouth shut. So when he heard what Yuri Gargan said, he thought of a great response. He said, man cannot go to space and find God any more than Hamlet could go into his attic and find Shakespeare. That's not how it worked. Hamlet has no idea that Shakespeare even exists. In fact, this image in front of you, this was generated by AI. I asked AI to generate an image of Hamlet looking in his attic to find Shakespeare, and Google told me it couldn't do it. Because Hamlet's a fictional character, and Shakespeare is an historical character, and it makes no sense. What else can I help you with? That's true. That happened just last night. Um, I could, it couldn't find it. Eventually, by the way, I did trick it into giving me an image of Shakespeare hiding around the corner while Hamlet was looking, and it was as creepy as you might imagine. Um, so it wasn't getting used in this. But Hamlet has no idea that Shakespeare exists. Shakespeare is the author of Hamlet's story, but in Hamlet, he knows the characters around him. He has no idea. The only way Hamlet could ever know that Shakespeare exists is if Shakespeare were to write himself into the story so Hamlet could see him. Otherwise, Hamlet wouldn't know. But what we see in the Christmas story is we see God doing exactly that. He wrote himself into our story so that we could know him. So what we're going to look at today in John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, if you don't, don't worry, the, the passages will be up on the screen. But we're going to look at when God inserted himself into our story. We're going to see that Jesus dwelled among us so that we might know God. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. It says, oh boy, I got to hold my Bible up closer now. I can get my eyes checked. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This is a, a, was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So for all history, people looked for God the same way Yuri did. They would build towers to try to reach up to God. They would build their altars at the tops of mountains in hopes that the God, God, their gods would somehow see their sacrifices. They would fashion idols so that they could somehow see 
uh, like see the God that they were worshiping, the God that they were serving. God's own people actually thought like this as well. They weren't, it wasn't different. They actually wanted a golden calf to be fashioned like Yahweh so that they could see their God the same way other people saw their gods. And when, even when Jesus came at the time of his birth, they saw, they were looking for a Messiah. They saw their deliverer and savior as one who was going to come and overthrow their oppression, set up a kingdom that would be superior to all other kingdoms. And whether that was first at the time, the Babylon and then Persians, and then finally now Rome, we're going to destroy them. The Messiah is going to come and deliver us from them and set about a kingdom. So God came to dwell among us so that we could see and know and understand who he really was, what it really meant to save us. For thousands of years, men tried to obey the law and failed. Now would come grace through Jesus. Where the law shows our sin, grace was offered through Jesus, which is life. And we can never understand what that means if he hadn't come and dwelled among us and if we hadn't seen him. Because that theme was all through the Old Testament. And very, very wise people completely missed it. When Jesus dwelt among us, we would see God and know who he is. But also, Jesus dwelled among us so that he might know us. Look at, for time's sake, we'll just see it on the screen, but Hebrews 2, 14 and 18, or through 18. It says, since therefore the children, that's all of us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What we have here is a core truth we should not lose sight of. Jesus didn't simply show up at Satan's door to pay the ransom for sin. It's a common question. You usually get it asked somewhere within Bible college at some point. It's like, why did it have to be this way? Wasn't there some other way that Jesus could make payment for our sins? And that's the debate that happens throughout. But Hebrews 2 really answers this. Because by dwelling among us, Jesus was able to make the best atonement for our sins. There's a big word up there, kids. There's actually a lot of big words up there. Um, but there is a big word up there toward the end, that word propitiation. And you may not know what that means yet. I'm about to explain it to you. But you've felt it before. Because 
For propitiation to be made, something has to happen first. Someone has to be angry. And maybe that was your mom or dad or your brother and sister, but maybe at some point you did something sometime and someone was very angry about it. They were angry with you. Kids, has that ever happened to anyone in this room or is it just me? Okay, all right, cool. Still happens to me all the time. Uh, I tend to make people very angry. And then to make propitiation is to do something where that person who's angry will no longer be angry anymore. That anger in their heart is appeased. It goes away. Well, when sin entered this world, a holy God was angry. And he was separated from that sin. And so propitiation had to be made, and we as sinners, we could not make that propitiation. Someone else had to. Now, back in the Old Testament, the people would have what's called a high priest, and that high priest would go, and on their behalf, he would go in and make a sacrifice that would temporarily be that propitiation of sins. And so people would depend on that high priest to go make that sacrifice on their behalf before the Lord. But Jesus came to make a once-for-all propitiation for our sins. That's the teaching here. And the way to do that, look at how he did it. He was made like us in every respect so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. See if you can follow me. Kids, this might be tough. Adults, this might be tough too. See if we can do it. God is omniscient. God knows and understands the curse of sin. But when Jesus came to live among us, he experienced that curse. He didn't sin, but the temptation to sin was all around him. He faced temptation, yet without sin. But he saw those whom he loved and cared about, and people that everywhere around him not only tempted, but also fall into sin. And he saw the consequences and the pain of that play out and the ache. And time and time again, Jesus had to experience the heartache of some of his closest and loved ones sinning even against him. And the suffering, Jesus suffered in a way that we'll never have to suffer. But while on earth, because of the curse of sin, Jesus actually endured a lot of suffering. At some time after the age of 12, Jesus was going to have to bury his father and feel that heartache, that if there wasn't a curse of sin, there would be no death. But because of the curse of sin, Jesus endured that heartache. And on the flip side, there's actually a flip side to this. Jesus had to leave his mother behind, looking at her while dying. He felt that pain. He had to feel the anguish of a cousin be unjustly murdered by wicked rulers in their society. He had no home for long stretches at a time. It would either be whoever would take him in or on a boat or out in the woods. That's where Jesus lived. He lost friends to disease. He lost friends to money. Even his own brothers at some point would reject him and call him crazy. There is actually a happy ending to that story, though, which we don't have time for. <laughs> um, 
And even one of his dearest and closest friends at one of his lowest points in his human life would reject and deny him where he could see it happen. Jesus suffered. So I know that this is a great time of joy and celebration, but I also know that for some of you, I know for some of you, this has been a rough year. Maybe you're a little numb to all the celebrating that's happening. Maybe there have been some sinful acts and habits in your life that have torn you up inside, and maybe that's impacted those around you whom you love, your job, your friends. And I know that for some of you, uh, you've, had, you've felt the curse of sin around disease and the loss of loved ones. And I want to tell, show you today the hope that you are not alone. That Jesus came. When Jesus came, we celebrate Christmas. Jesus coming and living among us. Jesus suffered just like we do. And then he paid the price for that suffering and affliction on the cross so that we do not have to be a slave any longer to sin. We are not alone. There's a saying that's almost within the church, this, this idea of, Already, not yet. Jesus has already redeemed us, but we are not yet with him in glory. We are sanctified in Christ, but our bodies and our hearts are not yet fully sanctified, but one day they will be. And this is the hope and joy we have because Jesus came to dwell among us. Jesus understands our pain, not as some omniscient God high on a throne above us who is looking down, but Jesus calls us brothers and sisters, and he wept in the anguish of the suffering all around us and made propitiation so that that would one day come to an end. So because Jesus came to dwell among us, we can know God as much as we want to. And we can trust that God knows us, that God hurts with us, that God loves us, and that he will never forsake us. And that is worth rejoicing over. Amen.